0: Richard D. Wolfe is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the Graduate Program in International Affairs of the New School University in New York. Richard Wolf is also a co-founder and active contributor of his non-profit, Democracy at Work, as well as the author of The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself.
1: Professor Richard Wolf, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process.
2: Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
1: Let's talk about the economic system in which we all live and what Marx found that causes class struggles. A lot of people don't understand how capitalism has been declining and the underlying realities which have provoked the situation.
2: The best way I know to explain The problems, if you like, of the class struggle in capitalism is to make a metaphor, a comparison. Let's suppose you were going to have a picnic in the park with your family—your mother, your father, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, all of that—and you happen to know that your uncle, John, and your aunt, Mary, don't like each other. They have never liked each other. They have always fought when they have been together and now you are about to establish a committee of two people to prepare the picnic for the whole family. Would you choose to put into that committee John and Mary? Well, the answer is you wouldn't, because you would be creating incredible conflict for no need. You would be putting together people who don't like each other, who don't work together well, They will have a horrible time, and the picnic that they plan will likely not work out very well because of it. Now, let me turn to capitalism as a system. Capitalism puts together two key players. On the one hand, an employer. On the other hand, an employee. And we hope that out of the relationship between an employer and an employee will come the goods and services that every economy produces and upon which our life depends. But the problem is, like John and Mary, employers and employees are perpetually in conflict. It doesn't mean that they can't have periods of time when the conflict doesn't flare up, but everybody knows, who pays any attention, that the conflict, if it isn't exploding, is right below the surface. And Marx is the man who explained this to us. And he did this in two key ways. First, analytically, and second, historically. I'm gonna reverse the order, do the history first, then the analysis, and you'll see the point. History. Marx points out that before capitalism, particularly in Europe, but in many parts of the world, there was another system called feudalism. And before feudalism, in Europe, and also in many other parts of the world, we often had slavery. And Marx asks us to look at those two systems because they give us a clue about ours. In slavery, similarly with capitalism, you divide the people involved in production into two groups. A small minority, masters, and a large majority, slaves. The slaves do all the work. The masters take the fruits of the slaves' labor give back to the slaves enough to keep the slaves alive and functioning so that this system can go on, and they keep the rest, what the slaves produce but they don't consume, and Marx called that the surplus, that goes to the masters. A minority, the masters, thereby dominates economically the mass of slaves. And as the history of slavery shows, there are endless slave revolts, big ones, little ones, because this system means that the less the master gives the slave, the more the master has left for himself. And the more the slave gets for himself, herself, and family, the less surplus for the master. This is a condition of endless conflict. I won't take the time, but I could show you, and I think most of you will understand, exactly the same applies to the lord and the serf in feudalism. And here comes Marx's contribution. Capitalism never broke from that way of organizing a society. Once again, a small minority. This time it's not masters or lords, it's employers. That small minority controls and takes the product of the mass of the people who do the work, who are the employees. Let me remind all of you that if you work in a capitalist enterprise, you work all day. You use your brains, your muscles to produce whatever this enterprise makes. And at the end of the day, a very important moment, it's now five o'clock or six o'clock in the afternoon, You get up, put on your jacket, and you go home. The fruits of your labor, what you added, belongs to the employer, and he can do with it whatever he wants. You have no voice. Marx's point is the employer-employee relationship, the core of capitalism, is a core of conflict, of disagreement, of contrary interests that makes the system burdensome on the mass of people, it is by definition undemocratic because the majority who are employees are excluded from deciding what will be produced, how it will be produced, where it will be produced, and what is done with the surplus that the enterprise creates. Therefore, capitalism, for Marx, is constantly engaged in the struggle between employer and employee, what Marx calls the class struggle. And if slave revolts eventually weakened and destroyed slavery, and if serf revolts weakened and eventually destroyed feudalism, Well, you can see where Marx is going to go with his analysis of class struggle. It is the mechanism, Marx argues, for going beyond capitalism. Now, analytically, and again, a simple story. If you sit with an employer to discuss a job you are going to have, and you go over the details of the job, you get to the business about the money. And the employer says to you, for example, I will pay you $20 per hour or 20 euros per hour. It doesn't matter. You know something that you probably don't bring into your consciousness. You leave it in your subconscious because it's too difficult. And Marx put it in the paper, wrote it down so that we would all learn it. And the simple analytic goes like this. The only reason the employer hires anyone paying them 20 euros an hour or anything else is if during each hour of that worker's labor, that working person's brain and muscle, they add more than $20 worth of output for the employer to sell. If they didn't, If they added only 20 uh, 20 euros per hour and then the employer sold it and got 20 euros extra per hour, then the money the employer got would be used up to pay the worker, which he will never do. The condition of the capitalist employment system is that the worker produces a surplus, produces more in each hour of his or her work than they are paid. It is not an equal exchange. It is what Marx calls exploitation. And this has nothing to do with how well you treat the worker. It is a structural condition of employment. And it means that every worker who has ever said to himself or herself, I will never work for any employer who doesn't pay me what I am worth, doesn't understand how capitalism works. You will never be paid what you're worth because there has to be an excess of what you produce. The value of your labor has to be larger than the value paid to you in your wage or your salary because that's what profit is. This system is fundamentally conflictual and is constantly torn apart and rendered extremely inefficient because of it. And let me stress the last point. Workers are forever angry and bitter about their being exploited, whether or not they're conscious of it. So some of them will be absent a lot and not show up for work. Others will go and drink too much. Others will get high too often others will join a labor union, others will join the Communist Party, and so on and so on. And all of these phenomena undermine the success and efficiency of the system. When there are strikes, it is a mark against the efficiency of the system. In the United States today, where I am sitting, We have tens of millions of people unemployed. Those people consume, but they do not produce. We have roughly a quarter, 25% of our industrial capacity, tools, equipment, machines, factories, sitting idle. Unemployed workers, unutilized means of production. If they were put together, they could increase output by billions of dollars, solving the poverty problems of this country and the rest of the Western Hemisphere easily. Don't say that capitalism is efficient. It's efficient in each enterprise to the extent that it can. But as a system, it is terribly, terribly inefficient.
1: And we've seen uh, the flaws of capitalist thinking in your most recent book, The Sickness is the System, the pandemic, where ironically, we have come to our senses about providing some socialist solutions eventually. I mean, obviously, it took time because we weren't prepared. In the process of writing this book, what did you learn and how did it sharpen your critique of our systems?
2: Well, I was struck, as I'm sure many of you were, many of those watching or listening to the program. I was struck by this stunning incapacity of capitalism to prepare for this virus. I mean, this is not the first virus in human history. We have had many of them. Everybody who studies this knows here in the United States, we had a terrible viral pandemic in 1918, literally a hundred years ago, that every historian knows about. Killed 700,000 Americans started in an army base in Kansas, in the middle of the country. But we weren't prepared. We also have economic crashes. We call them recessions, depressions, downturns, and all of that. We have them every four to seven years. We had one in 2000. We had one in 2008. We had another one in 2020, on average, every seven years three of them, in 20 years. We weren't prepared for that either, even though it's as regular as summer and winter following one another. So what kind of a system, knowing that viruses are a perpetual problem? You know, in recent years, we had SARS and MERS and Ebola. I mean, I could go on. We know. And yet here in the United States, where we have a privatized capitalist medical system We did not have the tests ready. We did not have the masks ready, the ventilators, the hospital units, the trained personnel. We had nothing. And here is the important point. We have private capitalist enterprises that can produce tests, masks, ventilators. They just didn't do it. And why didn't they do it? Because it wasn't profitable. You know, to make a mask, what you have to do is you make it, then you have to store it in a warehouse for maybe five years or 10 years before you need it. So you have to pay for the storage and you have to pay to make it clean and you have to pay to make sure it's secure. A private company looking at the profits it can make from a mask and looking at the risk of how many years it may have to do it decides it can make more profitable investments somewhere else doing something else. So that's what they did. They weren't prepared. But it's not that somebody made a mistake. That's the logic of capitalism. We allow the the tests and the masks and the ventilators to be there based on what is profitable, There is the fundamental flaw. Capitalism organizes production so that the decisions governing it are driven by profit for a small group of people. In America, 10% of our people own 80% of the shares of stock of our companies. So a tiny minority, the profit for them governs what exists for all of us. So here we are talking, 600,000 Americans have died from COVID. This is a country that has 4% of the world's population and 20% of the world's dead from COVID. We are one of the richest countries in the world. We have a well-developed medical center. This system doesn't work. It is broken beyond repair, and nothing showed that more clearly than the total failure in the face of this uh, pandemic. Countries much less wealthy than the United States have done much, much better. It is as dramatic a demonstration of capitalism's lack of adequacy for our period of history as the Black Plague in the 14th century, the bubonic plague carried by rats. That was the message that feudalism had broken down. It could not handle this kind of a situation. And I think we will look back on the combination of a COVID disaster with another economic crash, and they are two separate things that happened at the same time in this country. By the way, the worst crisis of the United States that it is not out of. And I certainly hope that people around the world are understanding that the United States is now going through the worst crisis of its history. We have had pandemics, and we have had economic depressions. We have never had the two at the same time. And our political leadership is light years from even beginning to understand what to do and how to fix this.
1: As you've identified, America seems willing to criticize anything except capitalism, and if they resort to a socialist measure, they have to sugarcoat Mm -hmm. it, you know, ridiculously, as though it was some bad word. Now, there's a widespread misunderstanding of socialism and Marxism, and you and your nonprofit, Democracy at Work, argues that we can do better than capitalism. Why did you found Democracy at Work, and what is its mission and projects?
2: Democracy at Work is one of many new organizations emerging in the United States. Let me be really clear with you. I was born in Ohio, right in the middle of the United States. I've lived my entire life here. I've been a professor of economics all of my adult life. I never experienced, and I did not think I would live to see what is now happening in the United States. One measure of the degree of crisis that will be of special interest to you and your audience is the enormous renewal of interest in alternatives to capitalism. you have to remember that the United States is coming out now of a 75-year period, roughly the time since the end of the Second World War, during which the American people were subjected to a coordinated purging of Marxist, socialists, leftists from the government, from private enterprise, from the schools, from the media. We have been told as a nation that capitalism is wonderful and socialism is a total a failure. Americans in huge numbers still believe that. And that isn't surprising because that's what we were told. Let me give you an example of myself. I am a product of the elite institutions of the United States. I went to school at Harvard University, then at Stanford University, and I finished my education at Yale University. That's the equivalent of graduating, I don't know, in in France from the École Normale, or in Britain from Oxford and Cambridge, and so on. During my 10 years of education, before I became a professor, only in one semester—we have a system of, every year, two semesters per academic year—so I had 10 years, 20 semesters of education. In 19 of those semesters—I got my Ph.D. in economics—only in one semester, out of the 20, was I given one word of Marxism to read. And you know what I got at that time? I got about two months of assigned readings that I was to do, which we did. But such was the animosity and the antagonism and the hostility that there was an entire two generations, maybe three, who not only never studied Marxism, they had no idea what it was. And I I can't tell you how often these days I am involved in a debate on television, or in an interview, where I have to explain to people what the Marxist basic ideas are. I know what they do, neoclassical and Keynesian economics, I have to. That's what is going on in my environment. But when I start talking to them about the Marxian alternative, They have no idea. And these are perfectly intelligent people. It's not that. There's a complete erasure. Given that, here's what I will tell you. Our goal in Democracy at Work has been to reawaken and to redevelop, for our times now, a sustained critique of capitalism. In the United States, more than in Europe, much more. In the United States, that's needed because there's been no criticism of capitalism allowed here. You can criticize a marriage. You can criticize education. You can criticize immigration or policy. You can criticize many things in the United States. But there are taboos, and the number one taboo is you cannot criticize capitalism. That is equated with disloyalty, with being an agent of another country, all kinds of fantasies. So the first project of Democracy at Work is to reopen the critical analysis of capitalism. And the second, and there are only two, and the second project is to offer a critique of traditional socialism with its emphasis on the government coming in and doing things that offset the failure of the private system. And by the way, we support the government doing that. We're not against that. But the argument is that socialism, particularly if you understand Marx, always intended to go further and to transform the workplace, the enterprise, to end—and here I come back to the history of Marx—to end the breakdown between a small number of people running the enterprise and a mass of people doing the work, to break down the employer-employee model, the employer-employee organization of the workplace, and to say that socialism ought to include—should have already included— the democratization of the workplace, the creation of a factory, of an office, of a store, whether private or public, in all cases to make it democratic. One person, one vote. And together we decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the surplus all of us have helped to create. This is the addition to the tradition of socialism that democracy at work emphasizes.
0: Professor Wolf begins by explaining the fundamental dynamic at the heart of capitalism, which is the relationship between employer and employee. This relationship, he claims, has never truly moved beyond that of the lord and serf in feudalism, a hierarchical system in which the serf has no right to the fruits of their own labor. Additionally, in order for profit to be created, employees must generate surplus value beyond what they are paid, which is what he and Karl Marx refer to as exploitation. I want to know what makes Professor Wolf believe that we can succeed where other countries have failed, in terms of moving towards socialism on a grand scale. China, for example, which has made strides on infrastructure while the U.S. has yet to do so, is better able to mobilize its economy as a result of its being a one-party state. In practice, there seems to be a trade-off between the ability to take swift action and degree of personal freedom. I would assume Professor Wolf agrees that we ought to live in a rights-based society, but I wonder whether he takes a more negative or positive view of liberty. Since he believes in significant wealth redistribution, he certainly prioritizes the right to have one's basic needs met over the right to keep all earned income. I want to know where economic policy crosses the line from socialism into authoritarianism. Where I strongly agree with Professor Wolf is that all too often in the U.S., Republicans and even some Democrats will fearmonger about the debt and the deficit when regarding social programs and policies that help ordinary people, yet they are dead silent when it comes time to fund another war or bail out large multinational corporations. Although this goes beyond the scope of our interview, Professor Wolf is unsurprisingly a supporter of modern monetary theory, which preaches that unlike a household budget, the federal budget need not be balanced, but rather respond to inflation. On the one hand, politicians have already acted as though this is the case when it comes to endless military spending. So why not apply the same standard to policies that actually help people? However, the notion that the treasury can continually print money without consequence seems hazardous. What would happen if the US dollar ceased to be the world reserve currency? Now, back to the interview. How do you think we can move toward a better system of workplace democracy? You've spoken about so-called communist countries like the Soviet Union stalling once they reach a form of state capitalism and not being able to make that full transition. So how could the U.S. make that shift? And do you think the solution is political or perhaps revolutionary?
2: Well, let me respond by saying this transition is already going on. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples so you can see that it's already happening. So I would respond by saying... I would like to rephrase your question. How can we make it happen on a bigger scale more quickly? And and I'll try to answer that. So let me give you two ways that this is happening. And, And let me be clear with you. I get an email at least once a week from a group of workers somewhere in the United States, and by the way, sometimes outside the United States, asking me literally for technical assistance They are in the process of setting up or converting an existing business into a worker co-op, and they're encountering this or that difficulty. So I know it's going on from firsthand experience, number one. Number two, around the United States, we have the following phenomena, which may surprise you. We have hundreds of thousands of small businesses or sometimes called medium-sized businesses. Think of this as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, who together started a business somewhere, I don't know, I'll pick a state, Wisconsin. And they did that 50 years ago, and they were successful. And they built it up, and today, they are reaching retirement age, they're 65 to 70 years of age, and they have 200 employees in their factory in somewhere, Wisconsin. They have enough. They don't want to do this work anymore. They're 65 to 70 years of age, and they would like to have a gentle retirement. Their children have gone in other directions. Their children don't want the enterprise. The question for this couple, and I have talked to many of them, the question for this couple is very interesting. What to do? They could close the enterprise, but they don't want to do that because they know the 200 people they hired over the last 50 years. They know their families, they live nearby. They do not want to do anything that would jeopardize the income source for literally a 1,000 or more people that are dependent. And they don't want to destroy the local community because if the business closes, it won't pay taxes and that will limit what the local municipality can do in terms of public school, public health, and all the rest. Okay, so they don't want to do that. Now option number two. They could sell this company to some other company, but the problem there is the same risk. They don't know what the new owners may do with the enterprise once they've sold it to them. And again, the same risk applies if they do what we call go public, that is they issue shares in the company and they sell the shares in the stock market, because then once again, whoever buys those shares is in a position to make all the key decisions, because that's how capitalism works. One small group is in charge, and if they don't want it anymore, they normally give it or sell it to another small group. I then arrive and I have the following conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Here's how you can protect the jobs. Here's how you can protect the local community. Sell the business to your own employees. Convert it from a hierarchical capitalist enterprise into a democratized worker co-op. That way, the workers are not jeopardized. They have at least a good chance to keep that business going, maybe even to grow it. They will continue to pay taxes like any other business to the local municipality. This is your best option, not out of any commitment to socialism, but just as being a decent local human being. It is not a difficulty for me to persuade them. In fact, in a number of American states, the tax laws are so written that if you are an owner of a small business and you sell it to your workers, you get more favorable tax treatment for whatever you get than if you sell it to another capitalist business. Last point. The problem with this idea becomes, of course, where will the workers get the money with which to buy such an enterprise? And here, let me answer your question as follows. Here in the United States, there are banks that will lend to workers to do this. So first of all, let no one imagine that there is no commercial bank that will help. That's wrong. Number two, a local organization or a local group of organizations could of course help. Local churches have provided the funds to enable workers to buy these enterprises and to repay the church over a period of time. And this of course is easier when, and think about this, the workers are also members of that church then this becomes much easier to negotiate. Here's the third option. The government can be pressured politically to provide these funds. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader in England, before he was ousted by the Conservative portion of the Labour Party in England— Jeremy Corbyn was committed to do what I just said. He was committed that if he was elected the next prime minister of England, in place, for example, of Boris Johnson, who cannot spell the word co-op, let alone support it, had Corbyn won, he was committed to pass the following law for all of England, all of Great Britain. Any business can continue in the form it currently exists, but if a business, any business, decides either to close down or to move out of England or to sell itself or to go public, it must first give what's called the legal right of first refusal to the workers to buy the company from the employers. They can only do those other things after they have offered it to the workers If the workers do not want to buy it or cannot pay for it, then the employer is free to do all the other things. But they must give the workers right of first refusal. And then Jeremy Corbyn added the next point. But we are confident that this is the way to build a huge sector of the British economy that will be democratic, worker co-op, socialist, because if I become the prime minister, the government of Great Britain will lend the money to any group of workers that wants to convert an enterprise like that into a worker co-op. This is an old idea, it is not new. What worker co-ops need are political arms, political movements, Ultimately, political parties that will demand from the government this kind of support to build and finance and grow worker co ops. And not as a special program, but it is easy for people like me to show you that the government of the United States, for example, has favored capitalist corporations with tax cuts subsidies, countless programs of giving them resources. All that the worker co-op movement asks is to be treated in the same way. From now on, every dollar that is given to a capitalist enterprise has to be matched by making one available to worker co-ops for their growth and for their expansion and for their success. I can assure you, and I couldn't do this as recently as three or four years ago, when I make these arguments in churches, in union halls, in university classrooms, on the mass media of the United States, the response is overwhelmingly positive. Even when I label these ideas, As socialist, it is now okay in the United States. It wasn't before in my entire life, but it is now. And let me just, in case it didn't get across, a few days ago there was an election in the second largest city in the state of New York. The city is called Buffalo. It's a very large city, it has over a quarter of a million residents. So it's the second largest city after New York City itself. They just elected an African-American female socialist who did not run away from the label as their new mayor. These were things that were unthinkable five years or 10 years ago, let alone earlier. The United States is not only in the deepest crisis of its history, it is going through ideological and consciousness changes that I don't think are any more reversible. And that's one of the reasons the country is divided, is splitting, is having regional disagreements, and producing, you know, as crazy a leadership as Donald Trump was and as crazy a leadership as the many trying to replace him are now trying to provide to the United States. And it is not yet clear whether they may not, in fact, get another chance. Because what Mr. Biden is doing is compromising. The moderate progressiveness that he had is being compromised to death by the Republicans, and they will use the failure to make a bigger breakthrough to come through with a bigger program, they will blame him for that, because that's the way that American politics works. So if you were surprised, for those of you that are in France, and pay attention, that Mr. Macron's party came in fifth out of five, which is a really stunning uh, result, Or if you were surprised that in the general election in France, two thirds of the eligible voters chose not to vote, we are experiencing in this country an equivalent complete reorganization of the political landscape because of the depth of the crisis. And the only unique quality we may have, and I don't know, you will know better in other countries, but the unique quality of all that I'm telling you is that it all happens below the surface. The one thing that the political establishment tries to do is to pretend that nothing is all that serious, that we are working it all out and we are recovering. This theater of normalcy, you should understand as the hysterical effort to hold on to a situation that none of us, and that includes us, None of us is quite clear what in the world is going on, but it is continuing, and we are trying to understand it, but it is epoch-making change, that I can assure you.
1: I think because it's all about branding, right? Particularly mm-hmm. in the American political scene. I mean, I'm not afraid of the word socialism, but as you said, some people are. But by naming it a cooperative, which links it to enterprise and a kind of free enterprise, but it's actually free to all, not to right. just the masters at the top 1%. I think that that can help that mindset change that needs to take place. And I think that as you identify, we know we're fa- you know we just thinking on to the future. Uh, we're thinking about, the climate crisis. We're thinking about just this breakdown in in the commons, and you know, if we were part of this more cooperative or socialist or whatever the word is, we could solve those problems. But in the way capitalism is just designed to make, as you say, profit for the top, and it's creating more problems. It incentivizes destruction of our planet and so many things.
2: Yeah, I would add only that. Because of my work here in the United States, and I have a weekly radio and television program that I prepare, I have to keep track of the polling. And the Axios Momentive is a major polling operation here in the United States. And their most recent poll, which is based on about 3,000 adults here in the United States, randomly chosen, showed some remarkable things. It asks Americans, do you feel positively or negatively about capitalism? Do you feel positively or negatively about socialism? This, by the way, now is a normal polling question, which it never was in the United States for most of the last 75 years. Part of what you did to keep socialism away was to act like it wasn't there, except over there in the Soviet Union, which was everything bad. You know, it was was that kind of childish treatment. But it isn't anymore. And here are some numbers you might want to think about. A majority of Americans now associate capitalism with negativity. And here are the numbers for socialism: Among African Americans, 60% feel positively towards socialism. Among women... 45% feel positively about socialism. And here's one that may surprise you a great deal. Among self-identified members of the Republican Party, that's the party of Donald Trump, 33% of them say they feel positively towards socialism. I have to underscore that you must, try to understand what this is about. This is not—let me be clear with you—this is not an endorsement of socialism. They don't know anything—and I'm exaggerating a bit here, but not much—they know very little about socialism. It's not taught in the schools. It's not on the media. There is no place to learn it unless you go to a specific one of our larger cities and you spend a lot of time, yes, that you can find groups of people that are socialist in one way or another. But you have to do a lot of work. It's not readily available. You will not encounter it in, in most situations. So what your, these numbers mean is that there is a shift, but the shift is toward capitalism. It is a statement by these people, and we're talking now pretty much half the country, that capitalism is perceived as the system in which they live, and they don't like it. They don't want it. They feel as though this system, whoever it benefits, isn't benefiting them. And they are therefore open to hearing about what else is there? What could we do? When I give talks, people raise their hand and I call on them and most of their questions, I would say at least 55, 60% of the questions are various ways of saying, would you please, Mr. Professor, tell me what is socialism? They just don't know. Most of them know next to nothing. A few of them have a little bit of an idea that has to do with Scandinavia, with Denmark or Norway or Sweden, and they've heard something. Then there are those who think, well, that's about Russia. Half of them know that the Soviet Union doesn't exist. The other half, and you have to understand this is the United States, our education system is extremely poor. Half of the people who ask me about Russia are not aware that in 1989, something big in Russia changed. You have to understand that. I know it's painful. I'm standing in an audience. I've got 500 people looking at me. I've got to respond without insulting the person, and et cetera, et cetera. Or nowadays, people think socialism is China. That's because the United States is revving up a new Cold War, this time focused on China, People's Republic of China. There's a growing number of people who are making vague associations between China and socialism. So, for example, I got the following question. Is it part of socialism to discriminate against Muslim Uyghurs? Why? Because in this country, the the Chinese government policy towards that very small group of people in the western part of China gets an enormous amount of exposure. But it's a population that is telling everyone, we don't like capital." This story about capitalism being wonderful, this story is fading. You can't do that anymore. The right-wing cannot rally its troops around capitalism. That's why it doesn't do it anymore. It rallies the troops around being hateful towards immigrants. It rallies the troops around fake elections. It rallies the troops about the right to buy a gun. It rallies the troops about white supremacy. Those issues, it can get some support. But let's get together for capitalism, That is dead. They can't do anything with that. They have to sneak the capitalism in behind those other issues because otherwise they have no mass political support.
1: And so you're speaking about the illusion of capitalism and this one that we've been indoctrinated with for so many uh, decades. But uh, capitalism, as you say, has many faces, and so does socialism. So in what direction would you see our capitalism evolving in, in terms of adopting more of a socialist model? I mean, what would it look like? You've mentioned then Marco.
2: Well, at this point, it's very difficult for me to answer that question. Good question, but it's difficult to answer. Because in a way, the emerging consciousness that is anti-capitalist for sure, but only beginning to be pro-socialist, it's confronted in a way with two or three different versions of socialism. And those are going to be the ones that, in effect, struggle for the loyalty of the new emerging interest in socialism, and I'll tell you what the three are. The first one is, let's call it traditional socialism. It's the role of the government coming in with regulations and laws and institutions to offset the inequality, the instability of capitalism. Think of it as a mixture between the Scandinavian, Western European, notions of the government coming in, uh, and that is uh, mixed in a little bit with the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and China, in the sense that there would be people interested in, should the government own and operate the enterprises, or simply regulate them and leave them private? This kind of socialism is there. It is out there. There's a lot of literature about it. There are these countries that do it. That will be one possibility. On the other end, you have something that will best be described, I think, as a mixture of socialism and anarchism. In other words, it's a level of socialism that is motivated by enormous anti-state thinking. And remember, this is a reaction to having had socialism equated to, let's say, Stalinism. these people socialism is some sort of horrific governmental dictatorship and they like much of it but they don't want that so they embrace a kind of anarchism and so the boundaries between anarchism and socialism become very fuzzy I am asked to explain what is Bakunin how is Bakunin different from Marx who's Kropotkin people find their way to these writers in the anarchist tradition. And there's an important French person there too, Pierre Proudhon, who plays an important role in the 19th century. In the middle, I would call what we do. That is an attempt to say, we want to borrow and build on the old socialist tradition, but we want to transform the economic base. We do not want to leave the employer-employee. For us to be crude, it's not enough that an enterprise goes from private to public. It's also a question, how is the public enterprise organized? If you simply replace a private minority board of directors with government official board of directors, you've done something important. You may have done something progressive, but you have not fulfilled The image of a socialism we think will appeal to the American people, because I'm working in this country. But I do think that the anti state, the anti capitalist, the pro socialist with a focus on workers becoming their own entrepreneurs collectively, that's a formula which in this country and perhaps others is the way forward for socialism now
1: thank you richard wolf and democracy at work for your invaluable contribution and all you are doing to help us analyze capitalism create a more sustainable democracy to lift all people up including the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society so that we can create a better tomorrow we all live on one planet we call home thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the creative process
2: and i would say exactly the same to you and i appreciate your invitation but also the work you do we are all working in the same direction and that improves the odds of our success in ways that i know all of us in democracy at work appreciate as well
0: the creative process podcast is supported by the jan Michalski foundation this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast was alexander taub Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.